Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome, everybody. Our guest today is a professional tennis player, Rebecca Marino. And for those who, of you all who don't know, she's a straight baller who burst on the scene at 15 after only starting to play the game at 10, which we all know now kids started like four years old, right? And parents breed them to sort of be tennis players at a very young age. So, you know, you started at 10, that, that's kind of late. How'd you even get into tennis? Yeah, it's late. Um, well, my family was really into sports generally. So I wasn't like a complete newbie in uh, being coordinating that sort of thing. So badminton was my first sport when I was five or six. I probably had picked up a tennis racket at some point before in like a multi-sport camp, whatever, but really started taking lessons and looking at tennis as a sport I could pick up um, around yeah, nine or 10. And my dad took up tennis at that, age, um, at that age too. So it really became a thing where he was learning to play at the same time as my, my brother and myself. So it was really fun. Ah, now did you all play together growing up? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was definitely like our family time was sport time. So on the tennis court um, became a, a huge thing for all of us together with my mom and dad and brother and myself. We would play all the time. So it was great. See, that, that sounds like a healthy sort of introduction to the game. So, like, let me let me ask you, how many hours did you start playing? Because, you know, did you go from, like, zero to 100? Or was it like, yeah, one hour, mess around? Then you sort of, like, a coach whispers in your dad's ear, oh, she has talent, you got to, like, push her, and then it gets out of control. Uh, I don't think it ever went out of control. It was a very, like, slow introduction. And I did maintain a lot of multi-sports until I was probably – 13 I was still on team sports at school like in high school um, even when I specified into just tennis the high school I went to asked me if I wanted to be on the basketball team because of my height mm. like so I was always you know in sports and even as a teen I wasn't really looking at tennis as a professional career I knew it was a possibility and something that I obviously had a dream or I aspired to do but the realistic side of thing was like, oh, just get a great scholarship. You're just a Canadian tennis player. Like, this is where you're going to go. And then the tennis started to sort of click a little bit as I did well provincially, then nationally, and then getting introduced to international tennis circuits for juniors. Um, and we have a, a pro event in Vancouver that I got to see pro tennis live for the first time. And that sort of was like awakening, right. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. So you're a 90s baby. And, you know, in tennis, we always group kids based on their birth year like you know sloan's a 93 baby madison's 94 so you know you get you start grouping based on birthday who were the who are the people in like from 1990 that we know on tour now oh gosh I, well i guess when you're playing in juniors you always think of the people who are like two years younger two years older so i always remember <laughs> i remember sloan a little bit i remember Halep um because I played the canadian junior open that was in uh, outside montreal so i played her there uh coco is close to my age and yeah. uh because we're both uh i think december babies so we played each other a few times and like oh gosh i i knew a lot more of the american girls i think just because of proximity and the number of tournaments and sharon fitchman's my age she's a uh, uh, yeah, yeah. player as well we're both 90 babies so yeah yeah she's having i some never would really now. think of anyone's age i just would be just like Okay, how am I going to beat them? <laughs> you know? So you were born in Toronto, mm -hmm. which is a city I love. I mean, I love Toronto. I spent a lot of time in Yorkville. Mm -hmm. um, I love Toronto. Then you moved to Vancouver mm -hmm. and you ended up in Montreal. Did you move from city to city for tennis or how, how did all that moving around go? Ah, well, the move from Toronto to Vancouver was when I was three years old. So that was just uh, my mom was raised in Vancouver, born and raised in Vancouver. My dad was from Toronto. They met in Toronto, but raised my brother and I in Vancouver. And uh, later on, when I was around 19, I moved to Montreal because our national training center was there. 
and I needed to sort of have a little bit more individualized coaching, uh, a greater number of uh, high performance players at that time were based out of Montreal as well. We had Stephanie Dubois, Alex Wozniak, Maria Peltier, like those sort of women. And I wanted to have a really good training group. So those were the women that I I trained with um, as well. At the time we had Milos training at the national training center. He's also a 90 baby. So um, yeah, we had a really good setup in Montreal and I was, I felt really fortunate that um, Tennis Canada was able to support us in having a program there. And I think that was really integral to sort of my quick ascent up the rankings. Um, Currently though, now I, I train in Vancouver just because I kind of had to reevaluate through the pandemic and right. I want, I, I think for me, it's better for me to be with my, my family and friends and I can, I have the ability to um, train in Vancouver since we have a, a national training center hub now. Here. Ah, okay. Um, so you played your first pro event at 15 mm-hmm. uh, and you started to show promise. Mm-hmm. Then at 16, you start getting those wild cards from the Federation, right? We know you move, you train in Montreal, Mm-hmm. Right, you train with the federation, and, and then that becomes they identified you, and then they start giving you wild cards. And you know, I always say that that can be a double edged sword because with the wild cards become attention, expectation. Players who didn't get the wild card are saying, Why her, not me? Right? Do you feel like that was sort of a lot thrown on you at 16? Um, honestly, no, I, I didn't feel a lot of pressure as a, a teenager, even when I would receive the wild cards. Um, uh, Cause there would always be a few for the tournament. So it'd be me and a couple other girls. And I, in my head, I was always like, I'm so lucky to receive these wild cards. I never considered it a given or that it was a competition for it. It was like, right. I, I felt like it was a great opportunity and a lucky chance. So I never felt pressure and I would just try to use it to my best advantage. And if I wouldn't receive a wild card, I never had it in the first place. So right. yeah, yeah, that was the mindset I had. <laughs> So you start to near like this college age, right? Where you're like 16, 17, starting to sort of evaluate, hey, I could go to, you know, um, college or I could turn pro. So you received an offer from Georgia Tech, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a great school. Atlanta's a great city. Would have been tons of fun. How did you make the decision to skip college and go pro? And do you think that if you had to do it all over again, you would actually go to college? Hmm. Great question. Well, the decision was really difficult for me because um, I almost felt like my pro career was like falling in my lap <laughs> and uh, like things are just lining up, but I wasn't, I was still just on the cusp. My ranking hadn't quite gone enough where I knew it would be a solid decision. So luckily um, in the discussions with Georgia Tech at the time, it was Brian Shelton, uh, who was the the coach there. He's an amazing person. Be sure. Um, super, yeah, <laughs> super <laughs> kind man. And I respect him a lot. And he said, look, like you can take a year, just defer a year. Um, you can resign your LOI. Um, and later on you can make your decision. So that's actually what I did um, was I continued to play tournaments, take the year. Cause I was 17 when I graduated December yep. baby. And um so I was young anyways. My mom was like, oh, it's a good idea if you take the year anyways, just to like, I don't know, be 18 when you go to university. Right. Um, and then I started doing really well on the pro tour. And I actually played my first main draw WTA event in Quebec City. Had my first top 100 win against Jill Cravis. And I was like, huh, well, maybe, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is something I should really do. And um, then my dad gave me really good advice and said, look, Rebecca. School will be there forever. You can go at any time. It doesn't have to be on a scholarship. You can go back, you can go to like local school, no problem. Your tennis career won't always be there and these opportunities will always be there. So mm. you should just do it and we'll support you. And yeah, and I was like, are you sure this is a, like, I'm missing a huge opportunity, like full ride scholarship, that sort of thing. He's like, no, I really think this is the best decision for you to do. And then, I think it was a great decision and I don't regret it at all because, I mean, after I fully committed 100%, I got my ranking up to 38 in the world, you know? So, not bad. Not that's a bad that's strange. Yeah, most most yeah. parents are like, nah, you need to go to school, right? This is a pipe dream. 
Uh, you're not number one junior in the world. You're not for sure going to make it. You know, there's like certain indicators. What was your world ranking as in the junior ranks when you made that decision or when he had that conversation? Uh, I think my career high junior ranking was 45 and I didn't even play that many. Like I didn't take the junior circuit too seriously. Like, oh, I, I, not seriously. I like I, I, I used it because I wanted to get into a good college. <laughs> oh, but see, that's rare. <laughs> that yeah. is rare. Because normally, um, like, if you're top 10 in the juniors, you know, Nike gives you the product only deal. And that kind of is like, you're like, oh, okay. Nike recognized me or Adidas recognized me. I got a chance to make it, right? Because they are good judges of talent a lot of times. Yeah. Or an IMG comes and signs you. But at 45 in the world, you're kind of like, eh, 50-50. Maybe I should go to a top 10 college, right? Or go pro. And your dad, wow, that's that's shocking to have him make that decision. I know. But, you know, I always think my dad has a really good eye for that sort of thing or like business decision he's a, like a very intelligent man and mm-hmm. i think he sometimes wanted to like go back on um missed opportunities and he's like no this is a great opportunity you gotta go for it like oh wow at least go for it and try and if you don't make it that's okay so when you start traveling did did he travel with you was it like your mom you know you see sometimes like Zverev has mom, dad, dog, brother, right? You see some other players that are just like them in the coach uh, or some players just bring, we saw Kvitova win a tournament a few months ago with just her and a friend, right? Mm-hmm. What was like your travel sort of team set up? It was kind of a mix, um, obviously, because I have a brother, my parents would have to sort of split the time so that someone would be home with him as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I imagine that would have been really challenging for them to juggle as well as my brother being alone with, one parent um so my dad would sometimes come and he can play so he'd like warm me up that sort of fun thing my mom would sometimes come um and then sometimes a coach would come if it worked out now were you in private coaching or federation um depending i guess at the time the way the federation set up they would um financially support your private coach if they were certified through tennis canada so um it's kind of both. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. <laughs> when you hold um, that trophy, you got to make sure you thank TC, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it was actually a really good setup. And um, for a while, I would share a coach with with players. So like Steph Dubois and I shared a coach for a while. I shared a coach with Heidi Altabak. I'm like, uh-huh. I thought that was actually a really good setup because it felt like you're a little group together. Um, right, right. I'm yeah. Uh-huh. So at 18, you win your first title, mm-hmm. which is a lot you know I know certain players been top 40 in the world never won a title uh you played Venus Williams in 2010 and I actually remember that match tight first set I was like who's this girl she could ball you know and Venus was sitting there you know you had on the ropes there late in the first set and then you played her tough right you eventually lost the match but then you go on to win 18 straight matches and all is good right and you get to 38 in the world and all of a sudden you decide to take a, I mean, you beat Pavlochenkova, who's now in the finals of the French. I know, right, I was so, talking to my mom about that the other day. I was just like, oh my God. Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah. I beat her. You know yeah. what I mean? And then you decide to step away from the game, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's like shocking. What Everything seems to go right. You're beating one of the, you're, you're almost beat one of the greatest players in the game. You beat Pav, who's still on tour, right? Mm-hmm. Having a good career. You know, what happened? Why, why step back when 38 in the world, now you're getting all the slams, probably getting bonuses, right? If you got a product deal, you're in that little cusp now, right? Where you get the year-end bonuses. Why, why take a step back? Uh, yeah, it was a really challenging decision for me because yeah, on the surface, it was like everything was just clicking. Results were good. I was starting to make money, that sort of thing. But I felt extremely isolated on tour. It's, it's challenging, as you know, from your experience, like just the constant travel and tennis and being an individual sport. Um, I think also being based out of Montreal and not coming home to Vancouver, which was where my roots were, um, also was challenging for me, just not having a solid feeling of a base. So always living out of my suitcase, that sort of thing. So it did eventually impact my, my mental health and I felt um, a lot of yeah loneliness and sadness related to tennis and I felt that, um, you know, I... I needed to take a break from the sport in order to make myself healthy and happy. Um, and I know it was, yeah, it was shocking for a lot of people. 
and <laughs> there was a lot more media attention surrounding it than I realized had happened, um, which is kind of crazy in hindsight. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to be honest with my my decision um, in that you know I I needed to take a break for my mental health, which is just as important as physical health. So yeah, that's why. So let me ask you this, because I always wonder, you know, we start to see players with like knickknack injuries, which you had a bunch of knickknack injuries in like 2012. Was that really because of sort of being sad or depressed or being anxious uh, or were they like legitimate injuries? Right. Because I know you coach players and they wake up, oh, you know, my my wrist kind of hurts. Right. Or my shoulder kind of hurts or my lower back is hurting. Right. It's like, yeah, you're just nervous. Right. With mm -hmm. it. Or you're just unhappy, right? You know what I mean? What was it? Were the injuries like legitimate physical injuries, or was that an example of how the mental injury, right, or the, the sort of the mental stress can kind of take mm. away and have an impact on your physical? Well, in 2012, I did take six months away, and that was for my mental health. Like, yeah. um, I took a, a protected ranking, and I discussed with the WTA that it was for my mental health and that I needed uh. I needed time, uh, and they were actually really supportive in that allowed me to do that um but we kept it very quiet and private because it is very private manner at that time so it wasn't a, an injury um for, for that specifically i'm sure there were little knickknack injuries i know i i form or i pulled my ab at one point um which was really uncomfortable in, in the final and, that I and hard to heal hard to heal really too. hard to heal so that was a bit of a recurring thing for a little while and then I've always had kind of back issues as a quite a tall person. So <laughs> those are probably legitimate injuries. It's hard. I mean, it's over 10 years ago now, so it's hard for me to really think of specific things. Um, but the, the six-month break was um, was a mental health break. And, but I, I really, in hindsight, I should have taken longer. I should have taken like a year and then, and then tried to return. So... Back then, they didn't consider, or I don't even know, did they do now? Do they consider sort of depression or mental health break as a legitimate protected ranking thing? Like, is there something that somebody could do now, take a PR because, hey, you know what, I'm depressed, right? Or um, I need to take a mental health break. Are they, is that like a, a thing now? And should it be? I think it should be because, I mean, it, it obviously depends the severity. Like, it, we don't want players just be like, I need a mental health break because maybe the results aren't going so well. So there's a bit of a fine line where it's like, where, where should, what should we allow? Um, yeah, but I, I think it's something that we should consider, um, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be public all the time. Um, I think, you know, I was seeing a therapist and I was doing a lot of things behind the scenes that um, people weren't aware of at the time, except I, I did discuss it with the WTA. So I had my actual legitimate backup uh, for, for what I was doing. Now, as for the rules on it right now, I'm not actually sure that's something that we'd have to check with, with them mm -hmm. specifically to know. Um, so I don't want to speak out of context here if I'm, I'm incorrect, <laughs> but that's just <laughs> what I remember from that time. So what was their reaction? Were they shocked was there any supportive services at the time that would that wta had to offer or even tennis canada you know what i mean once you sort of brought it brought it to light was it a shock or, you know what kind of support that they provided? i think everyone was shocked um just because yeah i kept it pretty close to myself and i wanted it to be my own personal decision um but i was i was told that there were services available to me through the wta uh, if I needed it, but I already had my, my own stuff set up um, in Vancouver. So I had a therapist I was seeing and medical um, doctors and that sort of thing uh, in terms of having that su complete support network to get me back on track and feeling happy and healthy like I am now. Like <laughs> it, it seems like <laughs> we always focus on that sad part of my life, but I'm totally like back on track and happy and no problems. Uh. <laughs> so when you were sort of going through it, because like I, when I was uh, traveling in 2000 and I would say 14, mm. I was in Dalton, Alabama. Right. And as you know, you're traveling to, to the tens and the fifteens and the twenty fives. And they're in like Evansville, Indiana, and mm. Dalton, Alabama and Charlottesville. They're in like 
less glamorous cities. Oh yeah. Right? And I actually, I actually had a stroke, <laughs> right? So I had a stroke. It rained like four days in a row and I was uh, staying in a budget rate hotel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it is stressful to sort of, especially at that level, be traveling at that level and be away from home. And, you know, it's not like a lot of fine dining or things to sort of break up the monotony and not like a lot of sightseeing in those kind of cities. So how much of that do you think people like know about? I mean, I think people think, oh, you're a traveling tennis player, you're living out of a suitcase, you're on and off airplanes, it's so great. And I always tell people like, depends on where you are. Yeah, Paris is great, but you gotta go to a couple bad cities in between, you know, on the way there, right? You gotta go to places you may not wanna go. Um, you know, it's not just about the four grand slams. You got tune-ups leading up to it that are maybe a lot less glamorous, right? Um, how much of it was that, right? Versus just being homesick, um, or was it like, you know, pressure? Oh gosh. I mean, that was probably part of it. I think it's not just one thing. I think it's like a compounding of multiple different things to create a, a challenging environment for anybody. I think anyone in the situation would, would have a, a challenging time. Um, so yeah, being in these remote places and all you're seeing is you get off the plane, <laughs> you head to the hotel in the the city where it may say it's in a major hub but it's actually like 45 minutes out in a small outskirt city <laughs> too far <laughs> to then, go back into the city after a yeah match. Uh, right. i remember there, there was one tournament i was at i can't i think it was also in alabama somewhere and um no offense only, to alabama <laughs> no offense right. to alabama it's just like the, the one that comes to mind was they're the hotel and then right beside is a uh tgi fridays and i was the only uh, restaurant around. So every night we go to TGI Friday, which isn't that bad, but like, you know, that's it's not Milos. It's not Milos and then, in, and in Montreal. <laughs> and then you head to the tennis courts and that's all you see for the whole week. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, so it's, it's not definitely not as glamorous as, um, you know, people might think in terms of like a jet setting lifestyle. And I, I try to let a lot of my friends and family know at least that's what the life is like. And sometimes if these friends decide to come with me to a tournament after they experience it, they're like, oh, I understand your life so much better now. Having (laughs) done one week, like I get it. So... Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. With the Tennis.com podcast with our guest, Rebecca Marino. And Rebecca, we left off talking about sort of having folks travel and sort of get a get a sense of this world, right? And we all know when you first hit the tour, there's levels to this, right? You got to start your 10Ks, your 25Ks, right? You got to hopefully get a wild card into a 125. You get in 125, you get a wild card to a 250. You know, you get top 106 in the world, you start getting to the slams, right? So as a coach who has sort of been on that train with multiple players, I often think that you know, it's unfortunate that as a player is making their ascent, they quite often can't afford to have a coach plus family members travel. They can't afford to have family members, a coach plus a physical trainer travel. They certainly can't afford to have a family member, a coach, a physical trainer and a therapist. Right. (laughs) And I would say if I had to sort of set up like a successful team for a player at a young age, I would anticipate right, sort of the mental challenges, right, and the depression and sort of the the struggles, no matter how happy they pretend to be, like, this journey is hard. Some of these cities aren't great. Being alone on the tennis court kind of sucks, right? Um, You don't have a teammate to pat you on the back and give you a pep talk, right, or to deflect and accept any of the the negativity that comes with it. It's kind of all on you. Um, You know, I've also wondered, like, when a player starts on tour, even before it hits, knowing it's going to hit and having them travel with a therapist, just in anticipation of it will get hard. And when it gets hard, you're going to need cope. Do you agree with that? Do you think that most players, if they can afford to, even while things are good, should start to like bring on a therapist? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think regardless whether uh, it's tennis or not, everyone should have a therapist in their back pocket. And the beauty is, (laughs) 
right now we can do things remotely too. So the therapist wouldn't even have to travel with a player to a tournament physically if, if it's someone that they have a good rapport with, that they've built the relationship before going out and traveling, they can reach them by phone, by, by video conference. And it's just another tool in the, the box. Um, as we know, at a certain level, everyone has the skills and it's what, what the dividing factor is. It's a lot of mental and how you can deal with week after week, maintaining a consistent um, positive attitude, even if your results aren't consistent at all. Um, at least knowing that there's another week, another opportunity for you to do better. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, having a therapist as a, as a tool, just as like uh, any player would have a, a trainer, a, a coach, um, you know, <laughs> a number of different things, a physio, um, mm -hmm. I think a therapist or someone that they can rely on to fill that um, is, is super helpful. Yeah. So you make a good point. Yeah, I was always like when I when I talk to you know people at the junior level at the, at the collegiate level and they, when they watch tennis they see something totally different, right? They're looking at forehands and backhands and sort of playmaking, and you know you look at some of the, the the coaching or the you know secret coaching that's happening from the stands. A lot of it is mental. It's like believe, right? It's you know go for it. It's like believing yourself and that kind of thing. It's rarely like hey serve here, serve there. Right. It's always about sort of like mental reinforcement and those that make it, you know, now we hear, you know, sweet attack um, talking about how her therapist helped her. We talked about it. Halep is very vocal. Right. We um, a lot of players are kind of coming out saying, hey, I'm been seeing a therapist or a sports psychologist, et cetera. So it is definitely, you know, one of those things I think players are becoming, you know, incorporating into their training, becoming more honest about, you know, it's probably been happening for a long, especially at the higher level, right? For a long time. But I think players now are like more vocal and honest about, oh yeah, you know, I got a therapist, I'm seeing a mental coach. We're seeing them on the phone five minutes before walk on, right? And the coach is standing right there. So you're not talking to the coach, right? You're talking to, you know, somebody got you laying on the couch, right? So, um, you know, it's interesting now, like to build a successful player, it is not just a coach and a trainer. It's like all of that. It's like a mental coach or it's having the right sort of setup and yeah, you know it's sort of refreshing so you so recently Naomi came out and she talked about how she's feeling a, a little bit of anxiety and depression did that surprise you because on paper you know it looks like yo last year she made 50 million dollars right so you know how bad can life be right but it can be real bad right and it can be real lonely so what did you think about that when she came out I actually really respected her, um, just how open she was to um, how how she was feeling and everything going on. Um, because I think after her first statement about not wanting to do press, um, I mean, I, I know it was related to that, things kind of spiraled out of control, I think. Um, but she was trying to set boundaries and I really respect that she was trying to do that. And she's also been very vocal in the past. I remember at Charleston, there was, you know, she was she was honest with the media there and how she was, you know, having a little bit of a, a spell of, of depression or, or sadness. And, um, you know, it's great. I mean, it's not great that she's going through this. And I really feel for her because I've been in that situation and it's not fun. But I think it's fantastic that she's at least using the platform to create discussion um, that a player who's number two in the world can go through something like this, just like anyone else. So um, I, I hope that she she can do everything she can to get back to the sport and to be as happy as she can. But uh, yeah, it, it was kind of interesting to, to read about and see. And um, I obviously don't know the full context because no one knows that except for her. Right. But yeah. So now you're back on tour, right? In the past year, right? We both had to travel in the pandemic. So mm -hmm. showing up in the city, not allowed to leave your room, got to sit in your room for five days, seven days, sometimes for, you know, only 48 hours until your PCR test come back. You got the quarantines, you can't leave the hotel, you got to get food delivered in. You can go to the site, then you can get an hour sort of mental health walk from the hotel. Mm -hmm. How much of that do you think uh, weighed on, you know, it's weighing on the players now. Now that you haven't traveled there, I can tell you Australia was hard for me, right? Mm -hmm. On day 13, 
um, of the 14 day quarantine, I started to get the shakes, right? Cause I was, you know, there was no fresh air. My windows didn't open in my hotel room. Um, and my hotel room wasn't that big. So, uh, and I was with somebody I like, I mean, Sloan and I had connected rooms and I actually like her. So, you know, it, even in that situation, it was still hard. How much do you, how, how do you compare like traveling now, right? Knowing how lonely and traveling and the struggle you went through before, how was it this time around traveling in this environment, which. Oh kind of, gosh. You know. Yeah. Now, now is really not easy. And it's funny you mentioned Australia because I, I had been injured. I tore the plantar fascia in the foot and Australia was my first big trip. It was a brutal injury. Yeah. <laughs> and it no. took, yeah. The timing of it was potentially maybe good and that it coincided with the a pandemic. So it gave me a time to actually heal properly. But uh, I'm digressing a little bit. My point was that I was just like thrown in completely after qualifying in Dubai, having to go to Australia and do the two week quarantine. Um, it was tough, but I was just so happy for the opportunity and going in, I kind of expected it to be difficult. And I, I, I knew that there was potentially a complete lockdown if, if um, you know, someone was sick on my flight. I don't know why I, I, I just had a feeling that maybe that might happen. Luckily my flight wasn't affected, but um, I, I had like worst case scenario in my head. I was like, okay, it's like, I could just be stuck in my room for two weeks, but the few hours I got out was great. Um, so to start with that and then to continue with um, the rest of the tour after is feeling a, a little bit easier because Australia was really tough. As you know, it was like the most strict out of them all. Yeah. Um, and so now like in Paris to get the one hour out, I was like, woohoo, I have freedom. I can like right. go for walks. It was, like, it was great. Um, I think for a lot of people, it would be a lot more challenging mentally. So I hope they're um, relying on the mental health resources that are available to them, either individually on their own or through the WTA. Um, for me personally, I feel like having gone through my past experiences and having had, you know, my my five years of retirement, um, I was really prepared for this, and I had no issues basically. <laughs> um, so I I'm just happy to be playing tennis. I'm happy to have a job. Uh, and that's sort of the mentality I'm trying to have um, right now. And that I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be working right now when there's many people who are still laid off and my friends or many people can't even travel. And I get to go to these places I never would get to go to otherwise. So looking at it from more like a optimistic, positive place rather than thinking, oh, oh man, this sucks that I'm stuck in my room and I mean, right now I'm on day 14 of my quarantine in Vancouver, you know? Oh my goodness. And, yeah. So when I return from these trips and I come back to Vancouver or into Canada, I have to do a, a complete strict two week quarantine and I can't see anyone. So where'd you learn the skills? I mean, all of that is like, it could be just perspective from, you know, 10 years between slams and now being much older and sort of much, much more seasoned and wise. Where did you learn that skill on how to be? Cause you mentioned the word grateful. Right. And that's something that I always like talk to my players about. Be grateful you can play tennis. Right. Because a lot of people can't play tennis. Um, mm -hmm. Be grateful for the opportunity to be on the court. Um, and I mean, I, I learned to play like in the park. Right. So now that in Chicago, we got this great facility for these kids to learn to play. I'm like, y'all weren't here for the days where we had no heat. Mm -hmm. Right. In the armory. Right. So be grateful that you can train and, and experience. Where did you learn that? Does somebody currently, are you currently seeing a therapist that sort of helps you? sort of stay sane on tour, given the the previous challenges, or is it like you just are an adult now and can cope? It's probably a little bit of, a little bit of everything. I think there, there is a psychologist that I do see from time to time. Uh, initially, when I came off tour, I was seeing him, I started on a weekly basis and then whittled it down once a month and then every couple months. And then now it's just on a, as I need to talk to him basis. So it's been quite a while since I've, uh, chatted with them, but I know that tool is available for me when I need it. And I can just send a text, phone, email, whatever, very reachable and very, um, you know, receptive to me reaching out. Um, 
and it was through my discussions with him that sort of made me reflect a lot on um, the life that I did have, the life I, you know, <laughs> wanted to have and the life I currently have. Um, so he, he put a lot of it in perspective and um, just made me think about like, everyone needs to have a purpose and direction um, to make life meaningful. So what mm -hmm. is your purpose? What is your direction? And what's going to give you meaning and work towards that. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, when I did come to the realization that I wanted to come back to tennis, um, I was coming out of a place from that sort of mantra that um, it's a lot more of a positive place. And I felt lucky that I had the opportunity to even try again, successful or not. So that's why I'm, I'm, I feel grateful every day, um, even when I'm having bad days. Mm -hmm. um challenging days especially traveling right now is challenging um but in the end i'm doing something that i love and i'm passionate about and that gives me great happiness um so when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> very cool with the tennis.com podcast with our guest professional tennis player rebecca marino so let's talk about australia we talked about how traveling in the pandemic is hard uh who's traveling with you now is your mom and dad still popping in and out of the tour just to sort of ease the transition and keep it sort of fun and interesting because you got these cohorts now right where you can't mix and mingle with all these different players because if one tests positive they affect you know, your ability to play because they do contact tracing. So are you like, you know, forming your own little mini bubble within a bubble? <laughs> I, I wish I've actually been traveling alone this entire time. So since I've come back from the injury, I've been completely alone. So from Australia until... No coach? No, uh, no coach. Oh, yeah, you're real yeah. grown right now. You're real grown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big girl now. Um, big no, girl. it's... Uh, you know, quite honestly, the, the challenge has been trying to get someone to yeah. travel internationally and then have to do a quarantine when they return. Oh. That's, yeah, it's, it's really hard to convince someone. But I also know that, you know, a lot of these matches will have live stream. My coaches, I can text on WhatsApp. I can video call. We've got a lot of Zoom calls with, you know, my coaches and my fitness coach and like conference call style um mm -hmm. so I, I have these people available to me and i guess if we compared to 10 years ago i wouldn't wouldn't have been able to do that quite as easily i feel so i have the resources there just more from uh, from afar a digital way um but yeah it's been it's been quite challenging to travel alone and to do all the logistics of all my travel lining up when I need to get my PCR tests, when I need to do my flight, booking the hotel. Like I'm <laughs> a player and I'm a manager. I'm my own agent. I'm everything. <laughs> I'm running yeah, coach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, so you go to Australia, you go to Dubai rather. Yeah. You win three matches, you qualify, mm -hmm. which is great, right? In this new era of tennis, right? So you've had the opportunity to play in different eras. Cause when I think about 2010, 2012, that's like Bartoli. Mm -hmm. That's like young Pav. That's Venus in her prime. That's Allison Risk was like coming up. She was the baby, right? You know what I mean? And yeah. now you're like play Von, you went around in Australia and you play Von Drosova, mm -hmm. right? How do you, how do you compare that era to this one? Like what's the difference now in terms of, or is there a difference between the, the way the game is played? Hmm. I feel like, as time continues, there will always be changes to the game, whether it's large or small. I think we're seeing small changes bit by bit. Um, but I'm really liking this younger generation of players. Um, like Bondrusova is one of them. Like we were talking about Osaka, Bianca. Like there's a Barty. There's like these, this amazing variety of game styles. And like it's, it's creating a really dynamic game. 
So it means anyone can sort of wrestle for that top position and we have a great depth of players. So I'm really excited to see how everything will be in the next sort of five years and um, as, as we continue to transition and see more younger players, how these current players are going to mature. And then unfortunately, some of the current players who are a little older might be retired. So, you know, it'll get out be the really way, get out the way. Well, <laughs> not happening yet, but just like, of course, that's always going to happen. So I, I think it's, it's going to be a really interesting time. To, to see how the game continues to morph and you know we see a lot more girls coming to net using a little more variety with drop shots and spinning balls and um, not just completely ball bashing all the time so mm-hmm. yeah I think I think we're gonna see uh, things continuing to change like that uh, a little bit yeah yeah oh. so I got one more question for you so like you know right now I think we talk about like like when I look at someone's ranking, I can sort of imagine what they're going through, right? When you're like sub 100, you're kind of hiding a little bit, right? It's easier to sort of chase than be chased. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now you're in like this this mode where you're rebuilding yourself. Not a ton of people are expecting a lot of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, we're going to assume that you're going to get back to 38 in the world like you once were, <laughs> right? <laughs> what, what are you going to do differently? Like, you know, on your ascent now, now that you know what it feels like to get there, Right and how sort of lonely it can be. What what are you gonna do differently this time around as you make your ascent? Hmm. Well, I think I'm coming at my career from a completely different mindset. So before I was just kind of going through the motions of each match and things like okay, I need to continue climb, 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 win, win, win. Not really thinking about much else and the experience of it. And now I'm just yeah, I'm coming from a different mindset where I'm. I'm happy to be competing, of course, but it's more from a, from a love of the sport and not just going with it just for the sake of going with it. Um, so if I can get back to that ranking, that would be amazing. But um, yeah, I think, and that just comes with maturity, probably. Um, but if I can continue to, to get the ranking up and be a little bit more patient with myself, a little more kind when the, the losses come, I think that will go quite far um, and it's a matter of sort of bouncing back and not focusing on if one week's going poorly, that the next week will go poorly as well. It's like, it's a new week. It's a fresh week. You can win the next week. Like you can win it. You sometimes lose first round one week and then you can win the whole tournament the next week. So one match is not dictative of your entire year, basically. So yeah. I, I yeah, try to remind know, myself of that at least. I mean, like when you think about a tournament, right? You got 32 of the best tennis players in the world mm-hmm. and one person's going to win. Mm-hmm. 30, 31 people are going to lose or a grand slam, right? 127 out of 128 are going to lose, right? Mm-hmm. So like that, I always try to tell people like, oh, you know, uh, that was a bad tournament. I was like, for 127 people, that was a bad tournament because only one person <laughs> won, right? You know what I mean? So like that mindset from week to week and it being a long season, uh, I think are positive. I heard you say if though. So as a coach, I got to tell you, you said, if I get back there, come on now, come on uh, now. I, don't <laughs> worry. I completely believe in myself, but I, I always try and wrestle with the, I want to be realistic as well. So I need to make more baby goals for myself before I think too much about that high one. You know, that's maybe yeah. a long-term one, but right now I'm aware of where my ranking is. I'm 250 with protected ranking of 170. I am not at that 38 in the world, but what do I need to do in order to get there? Okay, we'll start by getting back into slam qualities. We'll start right then qualifying in the main draws, that sort of thing. So it's more looking at the steps ahead of you instead of looking at the destination. You know, it's like that analogy mm-hmm. with your car in the dark headlights. You can only see what's in front of you. You can't yep. see where the final city is until you actually get there. So I'm trying to have more of that mindset, but I keep my, my own more quantitative, uh, you know, ranking goals, a little more close to my chest, but they're there. I, it's not for, for lack of motivation. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. It's there. Don't worry. So um, I would say my last question, and you're like the perfect person to sort of like, you know, give the, give out this advice. Cause you were, I mean, most people don't get to 38, like being top 50 is like a career high for a lot of people. Right. So someone that was 38 in the world, then just said bye-bye to tennis for like, you know, not just six months, but like three or four years. 
and coming back. What what I mean, whew, what what advice you know could you give uh, a younger player coming up now that probably doesn't know what they're in for? You know, things are good now. They're like nineteen. They're traveling city to city. It's a good time. Whatever, right? Ninety five in the world. No one's expecting too much, right? Everything they do is like a bonus. Um, what advice do you have for that girl who mm. might be inside eating herself alive and too afraid to come out? Right. Hmm. Well, the first thing that came to mind when you're talking about that is it's not a race. Like you feel like, oh man, you always gotta like get the next ranking and continue to climb and climb and climb. But there's gonna be a point where you have to defend your points and you're gonna feel like the target's on your back. So don't get caught up in the the points race. Like don't get caught chasing your points, worrying about defending from last year, focus on the present and enjoy that. Um, and yeah, just be patient through the whole process that you might not make it right away, but it doesn't mean you're not gonna make it. Um, and what's the worst that's gonna happen if you don't? There's other things where you can rely on using your life skills, not just tennis skills to get you places. So. You know, whether it's in tennis or not, um, there's lots of opportunities through the sport um, to go places. So that's always something to remember, just to put everything in perspective more from a macro than micro view of just tennis matches and winning. But yeah, it's not a race. Be patient and uh, be kind to yourself through the process. I think those are the most important thing. Now, what about the media? Because now, like when you were coming up, there wasn't social media, right? There wasn't um, as much written about you as quickly, right? I mean, you lose a match and boom. It's Instagram, Twitter, lots of criticism, lots of comments. Mm -hmm. um, well, Twitter, would... Twitter was around at the beginning and there, it was actually quite active. Uh, uh, I, remember, I remember that. <laughs> I was a lot more active on Twitter. Um, okay. But yeah, it's definitely a different beast now. Yeah. So did the media have any um, impact on your happiness as a player? And right now, since it is sort of new, right, this, it's, or elevated and heightened, how do you deal with that going forward? Mm. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying that currently I think it's really interesting that the use of social media adds a new media uh, form. And I think we're seeing a transition from the traditional sort of print and video um, or like television uh, media, and now it's transitioning to more, yeah, Instagram, uh, a little less Facebook, but more Twitter, and then podcasts now, and like people can do self-driven initiatives to sort of get their own message out there personally. So I think it's really interesting, and we're going to see how that continues moving forward. Uh, in the past, it's actually interesting that you mentioned this because. I was pretty vocal about, um, I think at the beginning we were starting to receive a lot of messages when we lose and that's still happening from online betters threatening you, saying they're gonna go after your family, um, threatening you personally, wishing all sorts of things on you. And I had done an article about that probably two weeks before I retired and people often associated my retirement with, oh, it's because of social media. Um, so I always felt a bit um, misunderstood after my retirement through that mm -hmm. um, because they're completely separate things. I, I had done that interview because I thought it was actually a really interesting topic and something that I wanted the public to be more aware of at that time because it was just sort of in the infancy uh, of the social media like we're talking. So um, yeah, but I, I think it's an interesting tool now and we're starting to get a better grasp on it and uh, we're getting more comfortable with how to use it to our advantage in terms of self-promotion and marketing mm -hmm. and, and that side of things. So I think going from that infancy stage of social media to where we are now has definitely changed a lot. I'm personally a lot more comfortable with it and yeah, we're all good. <laughs> I went on a slight tangent there, but it's just something that I always think about when it comes to social media is that, you know, people always think I retired from it. So I wanted to discuss that a little bit because that, that wasn't the case, but it was definitely something that if I was in bad mind state and I would read something that 
backed up my own personal self-talk. I'd be like, oh, see, I'm right. And oh. it wouldn't help. Right. But it wasn't like a, it wasn't something that was put in my head. It was something that was already Are there. there. Or, yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah, no, the social media, I mean, it's, it's if you lose a match, it's almost dangerous to check, right? The death threats, even, even you know, I've received, oh, you suck as a coach and you're terrible and da, 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 or, you know, or they probably know that I'll read it quicker than my player reads it. So then I get the messages and it's, I mean, it's sort of gross and dangerous, but I mean, it's interesting to know that, you know, that wasn't what drove you, right? And sort of, you know, made you sort of depressed and gave you that it was almost like a reinforcement of your own negative thought, right? So we talk about, uh, having positive self-talk, like you talked about there. A lot of players being able to, you know, maybe having like that armor, right? So that when when the negativity does come, because it will come when you lose, oh, for right? Sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, to just sort of build yourself up and sort of have that thick skin to be able to to withstand it. Mm-hmm. So. And, and now I actually feel like I have a lot better understanding of it because these people know nothing about tennis when they're sending the messages. They've lost... Mm-hmm. I don't know how much money they've lost sometimes and they're just taking it out on you and they don't know anything about you personally. If they stepped on a tennis court with you, they'd get just wiped. So, <laughs> and sometimes the comments can be a, a, a little bit funny, <laughs> you know, Some typos, mistakes. Oh. <laughs> so I try to, I, like, if I do see them, I, I try to find the comedy in it. Um, but what I've also done is when I'm in a tournament, I actually completely delete instagram off my phone unless i'm gonna and then i re-download it to just post a picture and then i delete it again and then yeah so i I make it pretty much inaccessible if i need to send dms i can do it on on the web browser and that's just people who are already in my my dm uh folder so Mm -hmm. yeah i try to i try to be a lot more um savvy in terms of how I'm going to protect myself in a tournament, just in case. I mean, I believe that I'm going to win. I'm not going to receive these messages, but just to sort of get rid of the distraction uh, on the side, that's my own personal tool. Mm. Well, that's smart. I've I've asked a few people to do that in the past. That's all good. (laughs) Well, I wanted to thank you for coming on. You're extremely brave. I enjoy watching your match. I saw that first set of your match in Australia. I was like, oh, wow, she's back. Um, so, you know, thanks for coming on uh, the Tennis.com podcast. I will continue to root for you. And I wanted to just wish you luck on your ascent back to the top. And like you said, just hope you that, in, you know, wherever the journey ends up being, you know, just enjoy it. And hopefully it's rewarding as the, the first time. Yeah, exactly. I'm just trying to enjoy this, this ride of life and pride of tennis as much as I can. So thanks for having me on and letting me share my story. All right. Thank you for joining us.